Medical rewrites, medical rewrites, medical. Welcome to Medical Rewrites, the podcast that rewrites movie scenes with evidence-based medicine. I'm your host, Megan Jeffries. Our medical rewrite today is going to be Cast Away, great flick. Our deep dives are going to be about dental abscesses and coral injuries. This podcast will have all the spoilers, he survives, and descriptions of medical problems found in Cast Away. You can skip this if any of those are distressing to you. All right, details. Movies released in 2000. I promise we will do more recent movies. They are scheduled. They're booked. But these are some bangers from the 2000s, and we got to cover them. Movie budget was $90 million, which is crazy considering the locations they went to. Box office, it brought in $430 million, Kind of a big deal. IMDB has rated this as a 7.8 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes rates it as 89% from the critics, 84% from the audience. Fairly universally loved. If you haven't seen this in a while, it's worth watching again. It's streaming on cable TV for the two people listening that have cable. Hi, Mom. It's on ABC in free form. For those streamers out there, it's on Hulu as well. Recap of Castaway. There are essentially two stories of Castaway. The first half details all the ways in which Chuck tries to die when he's on an uninhabited island in the Pacific Ocean. And the second half deals with the aftermath where Chuck, who's played by Tom Hanks, adapts to his new life after he's been on the island for four years. His wife has gotten remarried, the world has moved on, and Chuck is trying to reintegrate himself into that world. We're going to focus all of our medical rewrites on the first half of the movie, specifically on the first couple of weeks that Chuck's on the island after his FedEx flight crashes into the Pacific Ocean. He is the only survivor, and the only visitors he has are FedEx packages that have drifted onto this island from the plane crash nearby. Ways to die on a desert island number one. Arrive with a problem already intact. Enter toothache. We've got some pretty good foreshadowing of tooth problems early in the movie. We see Chuck at dinner. He winces when he's eating food. He rubs his cheek slash jaw area. Chuck's not alone with teeth problems. The CDC oral health surveillance report from 2019 says that the percentages of dental caries among adults that are 20 to 64 years old, 90%. The prevalence of untreated tooth decay, which is where Chuck's at, was at 26%. So lots lower, but still a quarter of the U.S. Regardless of the original cause of the tooth issue, it could be a cavity, it could be a cracked tooth, or it could be an exposed tooth root. The result, in for most cases, is going to be a tooth infection or an infection at the site. In a healthy mouth, the most common and abundant bacteria are strep, peptostreptococcus, vianella, and diphthroids. Streptococcus is an aerobic gram-positive cocci. Peptostreptococcus, which is a super fun bacteria to say, is an anaerobic gram-positive cocci. Vianella is an anaerobic gram-negative diplococci. And diphthroids are an aerobic gram-positive bacilli. From all of the buffet of microbiology, a little all over the place. The use of DNA sequencing has done a much better job of telling us about all of the bacteria living in our mouths rent-free. They've identified over a thousand different distinct species, including some of the more resistant gram-negatives like Fusobacterium and Prevotella. The pathogens from oral infections are different based on the source of the dental problem. In the case of cavities, the most likely cause is streptococcus mutans. 
In gingivitis and periodontitis, they're more likely to be anaerobic, like Prevotella and Peptostreptococcus. And pathogens found in oral abscesses include more of the anaerobes like Fusobacterium, Bacteroides, Peptostreptococcus, Actinomyces, which is a full PIA to treat, and then, of course, Strep and Staph. Infections of the orofacial space can spread to surrounding tissues of the head and neck. The first symptom, which is usually trismus, which is the inability to open your jaw. The location of the infection is usually a tooth or a root, which can also then result in a periapical abscess. Other fun ways to die, the starting point being a periapical abscess, is A, it can get so big it obstructs your airway, so slow strangulation, or you can hemorrhage from the subclavicle vein because this abscess erodes into your vein, or you can just have plain old sepsis from systemic infection, a bacteria leaking into your bloodstream. This is more of a big deal if left untreated. So back on the island, Chuck's got a lot of time to think about this toothache problem. So either he, one, knows the risks of continued untreated infection, or he's in so much pain that he's willing to do just about anything to get source control of this infection. Chuck's solution to this problem is at best described as barbaric, but his plan is to remove the tooth. To do so, he takes an ice skate, figure, not hockey, he sticks the end of the blade, not the toe pick. We assume in the back of his mouth on the offending molar. Then to remove it, he takes a rock to hit the front of the blade and dislodge the tooth. And hopefully the root comes with it at that same time. I can't imagine this is a clean pop out, but maybe it breaks the tooth into a lot of pieces. You, then you can dig out those chunks with your tongue. It's pretty good at digging stuff. Regardless, Chuck survives this wildly traumatic procedure. We're assuming he achieved source control, but right after he passes out, he almost lands in the fire, but he clearly survives. We wake up, we see another day. And this is where I propose my first rewrite of the movie. We gotta have one of those FedEx boxes that washes up on shore. It needs to be filled with some medication. I'm thinking a package sent from a mom. Maybe we'll get lucky and we'll write the mom as a pharmacist mom. She's sending drugs to her daughter, who's working on a work-study trip in Malaysia. Obvious choices from the top are going to be NSAIDs and antibiotics. Young women need NSAIDs in traveling. We also need antibiotics for travelers' diarrhea. We're not going to talk about all the ways that NSAIDs are bad for you. That's going to be a different episode. Sorry, not sorry, cardiology folks listening. I have a better movie to discuss NSAIDs on. That's tomorrow. This is all about infections. But before picking the best antibiotic option, I have to know a little bit more about the microbiology associated with periapical abscesses, if it's just oral flora or if there's something else that we need to be aware of. There's a retrospective study out of Vienna General Hospital. It included 539 patients that had surgical decompression of dental abscesses. 50% of those abscesses were from submandibular spaces. The next most common were teriomandibular abscesses, which is the back of the mouth. In that site, however, most patients can't open their mouth. They have trismus. So I don't think that's likely what's happening with Chuck because he's able to fit the ice skate in the back of his mouth. So we are pretty sure that this is going to be periapical or submandibular space abscess. Out of them, the top five aerobes are strep, staph, Neisseria, Haemophilus, and Iconella. I've certainly heard of Neisseria being an oral colonization, oftentimes sexually transmitted. But I was surprised that it made the top three in terms of cause of oral infections. 
top five anaerobes, Prevotella, Cutibacterium, Parvomonas, Lactobacillus, Vianella, and Fusobacterium. So some classics. The study does a good job of reporting frequency of different species. It does not do a great job of reporting susceptibility data. The only data that's probably worth reviewing is the outcomes of testing against the anaerobic pathogens that they identified. The antibiotics that had the most reliable testing or in any sort of numbers was Ampsilbactam, clindamycin, and metronidazole. By far and away, Ampsilbactam was the winner. It was only tested against 215 of the 694 anaerobes, but it had activity against all of them, right? So active against 100%, but only 215 of 694 isolates total were tested. So caveat. Metronidazole was active against 80% of what it was tested against, and clindamycin active against only 62. So Ampsilbactam champion, silver medal, metronidazole, bronze, but participation ribbon level activity for clindamycin. In the search for better susceptibility data, I found a gem of a study, retrospective, but it pooled all of the anaerobes from blood cultures from 17 different hospitals from 2016 to 2020, which resulted in 1,960 anaerobes. Massive pile of anaerobes for us to test. Again, these came from blood cultures, so not all oral at all. So it's not a perfect fit for Chuck, but it's got some great data that we can borrow. The most commonly isolated anaerobes from this study were BFRAG, 26%, Cutibacterium acnes, 13%, Clostridium perfringens at 7%. Not oral anaerobes outside of the Cutibacterium, which we talked about before. But the authors did us a favor, and they created a subcategory of just gram-positive cocci that were anaerobes. That was in their own group. It was only 50 isolates out of the nearly 2,000 that were included in the full sample. But that little subgroup consisted of Peptostreptococcus, Peptonifilis, Anaerococcus, Fingodia, and Parvomonas. The oral antibiotics tested against this little group were amoxiclav, metronidazole, penicillin, and clindamycin. There were several other IV antibiotics tested against, but that is not helpful for the rewrite for Chuck. So we're only going to talk about these. Again, big winner, amoxiclav. Big standout, active against all of the isolates. 10% of the isolates were resistant to metronidazole and penicillin, and then 15% resistant to clindamycin. So again, gold, silver, bronze, clindamycin being the worst. Since this rewrite includes a pharmacist as the hacker of the box that gets sent on the FedEx flight, I'm going to be greedy about this and pick amoxicillin as well as amoxicillin clavulanic acid. So the new scene would show Chuck taking amoxicillin for two to three days. He doesn't improve, and now he's got the skating injury plus the leftover tooth problem in his mouth. We then switch to amoxiclav and have a very dramatic, tension-filled, 24 hours, will he or won't he moment of improving in symptoms. He does. Symptoms do improve. And we discover that this is caused by a penicillinase-producing Prevotella, which obviously destroys amoxicillin, but was then destroyed by amoxiclav. If the director wants a little bit more drama, we can give it. Chuck then develops Lemire syndrome. This is caused by Fusobacterium. He'll be short of breath. That's obviously going to be from the pulmonary embolism that's resulted from this venous jugular vein infection. Those septic emboli will then cause an empyema. Then we could see Chuck use the ice skate blade again, this time to make an incision on his chest wall. He pops in a garden hose and voila, homemade chest tube. Dental infection solved. 
Next on the list of ways to die on a deserted island, number two, traumatic coral injury. At minute 55 of the movie, Chuck has decided to escape the island. For his escape, he's got a yellow tube and a stick as an oar. The stick does not have near enough surface area to be an effective oar, but he is making progress. He survives the first couple of waves surrounding the island, but he really needs to be able to get past the surf into some flat ocean to make any sort of progress for a boat rescue. He survives the first, I would say, three, four waves, and then by wave number six, it's too big. He is tossed. He finds himself in an ocean-sized washing machine, essentially, pops his tube, and throws him into a coral reef that results in a massive gash on his left thigh. He crawls himself back to shore. He finds himself a cave. Nicely, it's raining. There's rainwater coming down this cave wall. He drinks from a puddle and essentially falls asleep, passes out in the cave. The next morning, we see his leg is purple, bloody, painful. He winces. And then afterwards, when he finally makes it out of the cave, he wraps it in bubble wrap. Now, there are a ton of different exposures from drinking this cave water to being in the cave, but we are just going to assume that the leg is only infected from the water in the sea, and we're not going to take in anything cave microbiology associated with this and the fact that he's going to keep it clean because we've got bubble wrap involved. In my lit review, looking at coral microbiology, I found a beautiful article. Chef's Kiss, superb review. It's titled... Infections and Intoxications from the Ocean, colon, Risks from the Shore. Among many of the topics, there's a history of Vibrio in this review article, which for me was at the top of my microbiologic concerns for Chuck's leg. Not because of the coral, but because of the ocean. This review alone is worth digging through the references in the show notes. The caveat I will say is there are no references in this review article, which I agree is criminal and punishable by some sort of academic karma. But while you're reading this article, it feels like you're in a grand rounds that's read by the Brene Brown of ocean illnesses. It's that good. So things I've learned about Vibrio that are worth passing on. One, it's a gram negative curved rod shaped facultative anaerobe. It's also motile. It's a swimmer. Water, a good link there for memory. Vibrios are aquatic organisms that can be found in oceans, lakes, and ponds. I was sort of surprised to learn that there was so much freshwater Vibrio in the world. Highest concentrations of Vibrio are typically in the marine waters, however, along the east coast and the Gulf area. Highest concentrations in the summer, lower concentrations on the west coast where it's maybe a little colder. Each species has its own optimal temperature and salinity preferences. Most like water that's 10 degrees, which is 50 degrees Fahrenheit, but Vibrio cholera prefers it to be between 20 and 30 degrees Celsius, which is 75 to 95-ish in Fahrenheit. The salinity sweet spot for Vibrio is between 5 and 30%, which is baffling that there is bacteria that cause human infections yet prefer a salinity of 5 to 30%. Normal saline is 0.9%, and that is more saline than the human blood. This is crazy. Vibrio can also hibernate. They do it down in the sediment during the winter and then reemerge when the water is warm again, or they just take up habitation in shellfish, plankton, fish, and sharks and survive on them during the cold months. Infection with Vibrio can occur from eating those sea creatures, shellfish, plankton, fish, and sharks, or for Chuck, from an open wound in the seawater. 
The CDC estimates that there are 80,000 Vibrio infections each year. That results in 500 hospitalizations and 100 deaths. Me personally have only really paid attention to two Vibrio species, cholera and vulnificus, but turns out there's more that are pathogenic in humans. In 2012, there were 944 isolates reported to the CDC from various human anatomical sites. 85% of them belong to one of four species, Parahemolyticus, Alginolyticus, Vulnificus, and Cholera. They excluded the cholera that caused the GI symptoms, however. The species associated with wound infections, like the one Chuck is pretty nervous about in terms of his left thigh, are going to be Cholera, Parahemolyticus, Alginolyticus, Vulnificus, and Mechnikovi. Vibrio vulnificus is the biggest concern as the toxin production off of this species. I think the term tissue melting is appropriate for the total destruction that this toxin has on human tissue. On the bright side, it should be pretty quick death for old Chuck. Two major syndromes that can result from infection from Vibrio are either going to be a bloodstream infection after you ate a raw oyster. That syndrome supports a 60% mortality rate in patients with a history of cirrhosis. We'll talk about why that is on a different day because Chuck doesn't have cirrhosis, so it's not relevant. The other clinical scenario is a wound infection or an infection from non-intact skin. That's what we care about. In that setting, early initiation of antibiotics is key to decreasing mortality along with aggressive hemodynamic support. So all the tubes, all of the drugs in the MICU, fluids, etc. The aggressive hemodynamic support is needed because Vibrio vinificus produces so many toxins that your body is in this sort of tsunami-like inflammatory response. All the vasodilation, all the hypotension, all the sepsis, darkness. Quick tangent, I get that this is not related and does not help this particular rewrite for Chuck, but I came across this in my lit search of learning about other clinical syndromes associated with Vibrio infections, and this case report is too good not to share with the world. It was published in 1984, so it's not exactly hot off the press, but it was an eye-opener for this reader. Case report, 32-year-old woman seen at the University of Texas Medical Branch Family Medicine Clinic in September of 1983. She's got a 24-hour history of severe pelvic pain described by the patient as, quote, worse than having a baby. She's also complained of right lower quadrant pain, low back pain, frequent urination with burning, and constant cramping. Upon physical exam, the patient appeared to be toxic. She has a temperature of 38.4, blood pressure of 116 over 82. Lungs are clear, abdomen's non-tender. They do a pelvic exam. No external lesions, but there is non-bloody purulent discharge noted. Cervix is mobile, no masses, but there is marked guarding and tenderness during the exam. Uterus, very tender. There is an intrauterine device that's been placed one year ago. They remove that during the exam and they send it to microbiology for culture. Empirically, she receives 4.8 million units of PENG into divided doses given intramuscularly. She also receives oral doxy for 14 days. This selection of antibiotics by the authors, they say is geared towards Neisseria gonorrhea, which makes total sense. This was in the 80s when penicillin was still a reliable option for gonorrhea. She's seen in clinic two days later, much improved. She looks like a million bucks. It's a miracle. However, a couple more days go by. IUD culture comes back. It's grown Vibrio vinificus. Microbiology is a bit perplexed as to this being the source of an IUD infection. They reach out to the patient. They want to do an interview to ask about exposure and how the Vibrio could have made it there. 
The patient had not eaten any seafood in the two weeks before having symptoms. However, 18 hours before the onset of pelvic pain, she was swimming in Galveston Bay and engaged in penetrative sex while in the water. Susceptibilities were done. The Vibrio was susceptible to AMP, carbenicillin, and cephalothin, which is old-school first-gen ceph, chloramphenicol, gentamicin, Bactrim, and tetracycline. It's a real hero moment for gonorrhea. Because assume gonorrhea, treat for gonorrhea, save the patient's life even with a Vibrio infection. Think of this case report the next time you're thinking about getting frisky in the water and maybe save that moment to avoid an intrauterine Vibrio infection, which is just a sentence I did not think was necessary. Back to antibiotic selection for our washed up FedEx package. As you can probably guess, there's not a ton of comparative data around antibiotics for Vibrio wound infections. There's not going to be an RCT that the whole world's being enrolled into. But we do have a retrospective study. It's out of Korea. It compared patients that got a third-gen cephalosporin, either monotherapy or combined with Cipro or a tetracycline. First of all, let's take a moment to digest the fact that the 30-day survival rate of this whole cohort was 39%. Not the mortality rate. I'm sure some of you are thinking, oh, she's confused. No, the 30-day survival rate is 39% for this cohort. When you break it down, the survival rate between each group, the highest survival rate was for third-gen cephalosporins combined with Cipro. Survival rate, 54% for that group. Third-gen cephalosporin combined with Doxy, 38%. Third-gen by itself, 35%. Big winners here, 20% delta in terms of survivability, third gen Ceph plus Cipro. Studies published in 2019, but this was a rather large data set that included data that was 10 years old. Enough about Vibrio, although it is the scariest of all the scary water pathogens. We have to think about some other things that Chuck could have gotten infected with during his oral trauma leg problem. One, erysiphalotrix, it's a gram negative positive rod, Mycobacterium marinum or Mycobacterium fortuitum, and Schwannella. That's a gram-negative rod found in the Mediterranean and Western Pacific. We talked about Mycobacterium in the Bridesmaids episodes, but not Mycobacterium marinum. Chuck would be thrilled to only be infected with Mycobacterium marinum, as it's usually a self-limiting infection. The onset of the infection is usually two to six weeks after water exposure. If antibiotics are even needed, it's one of those scenarios where beta-lactams are not necessarily first line. Here, we actually want rifampin or rifabutin. They appear to be the most potent against marinum species. Clithromycin, doxycycline, and minocycline also commonly susceptible, but their MICs are much closer to the breakpoints. So in terms of potency, which may or may not matter in the world of mycobacterium, rifamycin and rifabutin are the champions. Erysepilotrix remains acutely susceptible to penicillin, as well as any other antibiotic with gram-positive activity. Schwerinella is far more resistant. There's a case series of 128 patients with infections. This was out of Hong Kong. The antibiogram that they reported is septazidine, 99%, gentamicin, 97% active, cipro, 90% active, piperacillin, 88% active, and imipenem, 77% active. This is a pretty easy antibiotic decision to make here since Cipro is the only option that's oral that's got to come with us. In summary, to cover Vibrio and all of the other water-loving gram negatives, in our FedEx package, you got to put Cipro in there. And then, begrudgingly, you also have to put a third-gen oral cephalosporin, which I really dislike. 
I think the oral third gen sefs are criminally dosed, timed, the frequency, all, all the things that make me sad about this. The bioavailability of the third gen sefs is somewhere between 20 to 50% on a good day. It's affected by food. It's affected by acid. It is my most annoying beta-lactam class. Out of the options, however, cefpodoxime, I think, is the most reliable in terms of pharmacokinetics and bioavailability. It is criminally underdosed considering the PK in bioavailability. It's usually somewhere between two or 400 milligrams Q12. If we care about Chuck's life, we'd probably need to up that smidge. A real dose like 800 Q8 for instance. However, that dose is not evidence-based, so it is not an official rewrite. This is just going to be some scribbles in the margins of our script rewrite. That's all the rewrites for Castaway. Check out the show notes for references, especially the one about ocean intoxications and infections. If you know of a movie that deserves a medical rewrite, visit the website, complete the form, let the world know. This has been a podcast presentation by me, Megan Jeffries. Production and editing by Ann Conley. She is the bee's knees. Music by Brandon Meager. Please listen, then rate, review. Follow all episodes available for freezies wherever you get your podcasts.